heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Ladies and gentlemen, before we really get started today, I'd like to ask you to do a little thought experiment with me. Walk over to the nearest light switch, and if it's off, flip it on. I want you to marvel for just a second at the fact that when we flip a light switch, we actually have a light bulb turned on in our house. This is something we've grown up with. It's something we consider just its almost like background noise. We know that when we flip on a light switch, we will have light. But I want you to think for just a moment about exactly how complicated the electrical system is. And then as you start moving out into the grid itself, which your house is connected to, it's a very, very complicated system. You have production of electricity and you have consumption of electricity. And there are a number of sources that can be used to produce electricity. You have coal, you have nuclear, you have natural gas. Of course, now we have wind and solar. Uh, But the complicated thing about producing electricity is that the amount of energy produced must at all times be exactly equal to the amount of energy consumed. If you produce too much energy in a particular circuit on your house, yes, it just blows a fuse and then you have no electricity on that circuit at all. But you can't do that when you're the grid because the grid doesn't have anywhere to send that electricity. When you blow a fuse in your house and it shuts off part of your house, The grid just sends that electricity somewhere else. It still has to be consumed. So if the entire grid all of a sudden is producing more electricity than is consumed, the grid literally blows up. So imagine that happening in Texas a couple of years ago when they had that really bad storm and the the wind turbines weren't working. Or imagine that happening in a bad winter in uh, the northern United States or in Europe on a bad winter. And all of a sudden, you've got four or five months without electricity. People can't heat their houses. The people can't, they, they, you can't transport food into a grocery store. It, it would be an absolute cataclysmic event that could cause millions of lives. So though flipping on a light switch seems like a very simple thing, lights come on and everybody's happy. It's actually a very complicated thing. And it's made more complicated by the fact that normally it is the consumption of electricity that varies. And what the producers will do is they will fluctuate the amount they're producing. They'll they'll turn on some plants, turn off other plants, and vary the level of production so that it exactly matches the level of consumption at all times. Usually when there's an outage, it's a local outage. It's something like, for example, if you flipped on your light switch and uh, the light did not come on, it's probably an equipment failure, like your light bulb might be out. That would be the first thing you would check, would be if I put a new light bulb, does it come on? Probably does might be your fuse blue. So you might check that next. If the fuse is okay, it's probably just a transformer somewhere that blew. Everybody else has electricity, but there was a small area that you're unfortunately in that does not. But imagine how much more complicated managing the grid and keeping consumption and production exactly equal is when you start using sources of electricity where you can't control how much electricity they produce. With coal, natural gas, and nuclear, it's very, very easy to adjust production so it continues to exactly match production and everything just works. 
That's why we take electricity for granted, because those sources work so very, very well. But wind and solar, if a cloud comes in front of, a, in front of the sun, all of a sudden the amount of production in, in solar goes down. The wind, it varies. It picks up. There are gusts. Sometimes it's producing more electricity than others. It can actually vary quite a bit in a very short period of time. And there's nothing that the producer can do to accommodate those variations in the production of wind and solar. Now, nuclear, coal, and natural gas are so very, very reliable and so easily adjusted that you can have a certain amount of your grid for wind and solar, and it will still work because they can adjust the natural gas usage or the amount of electricity being produced by those sources so effectively that not only can they make up for the natural variation in consumption, but they can also make up for some of the variation in those other sources of production, wind and solar. But what happens if you have too much wind and solar on the grid? What happens if you introduce enough wind and solar that the variance in those sources is more than what can be made up for with natural gas, with the coal and with other with with nuclear and with with other energy sources? The answer is that if production spiked and there wasn't anywhere for that electricity to go, it would blow up the grid and you would have no electricity at all. It would be a cataclysmic thing depending on the time of year it happened, and it would take months, four or five months to resolve. So you would go without electricity for a long period of time, and so would everybody else. That can't happen. So what producers do is they introduce more and more wind and solar into a grid. And this is going to start happening in Michigan this summer. It's already happening in some states like California. They build a control chart that tells them exactly how much electricity is going to be used in a biggest, in a very, very large spike. And they say, okay, we're going to have to, we have to be able to consume this much energy, uh, but we can't keep production there. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the low end control chart or the low end control limit. We're going to see how much is the least amount of electricity that we know we're always going to be able to produce. And what they'll do is they'll throttle consumption at that level. They will throttle consumption at a level where they know that if there is a spike up on the upward end, that uh, there will be enough demand out there to utilize that electricity. So they use rolling brownouts and rolling blackouts, and your electricity comes and goes based upon the level of production. When production is high, when it spikes, they're able to meet more of the demand. And when production drops, or the wind dies down, a cloud goes over the sun, people lose their electricity until it spikes again. And they, they roll those around so that everybody is feeling the pain. Not everybody is, is having it. It's not the same person getting an outage all the time. Now, politics, of course, is also a system, and politics is a system that works in certain ways. If we use, if we look at politics the same way we just looked at an electoral system, we might say that when they could decide who gets these rolling brownouts and blackouts, Nancy Pelosi's house is probably not going to be included in that. She's going to have electricity all the time. So would Bill Gates. So when we start looking at the people that are affected by the rolling brownouts and blackouts that are involved in an electrical system that is not reliable, that is not dependable, that is no longer cheap, it's you and I that pay the price. It's not going to be the, the elites of society. They're going to get their electricity. So the process of looking at electricity like that, of understanding some of the inner workings 
of how it works and understanding how some of the changes that are being made and how we produce electricity will have a ripple effect, not only through our ability to, to consume electricity, but throughout our entire economy. Uh, this is a process that's called systems thinking. It's a part of lean manufacturing. There are a lot of other components of lean manufacturing, but we're going to focus on systems thinking today because I think systems thinking in particular can be applied everywhere. Now, if we, have to, if we look at the world as a group of systems and subsystems, we look at the country as a system. The country is a system that, that it, it employs other systems. The economy is a system. The government is a system. And so when we start looking at all of the systems and subsystems, how they interact, how the country interacts with other countries, the world economy is a system. The world of nations, it's a system. As we start looking at how all of these things interact, we can start to piece together things that may improve those systems, things that may make those systems break down. Uh, and, and one of the dangerous things that I see a lot of political leaders doing is fiddling around with systems they don't really understand. The desire to get rid of nuclear natural gas and coal. Now, we probably get rid of coal. We've got plenty of natural gas, so we could probably get rid of coal. But the idea that we're going to get rid of all three, well, we wouldn't really have electricity. Yeah, we've got wind and solar, but the output would vary so much, it would be almost impossible. You can't build a grid with that. So we have people that are recklessly making decisions about how our economy, how our society, how the country is going to run. They don't have any clue how the systems they're making decisions about even work, and how can they possibly make good decisions in managing the country, in managing the electrical grid, in managing the economy, in managing culture, if they have absolutely no clue how any of those things work. They don't think in terms of systems. That's a long introduction, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, you are on Voice of a Nation, and I am Wallace Garno, guest hosting for Malcolm. I've got a great show for you today. We are going to talk about systems thinking, what it is, and how utilizing systems thinking can help us better run our country. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to bring on a friend and colleague, Michael McCarthy. Uh, he's been working in lean manufacturing and in, in different areas involving lean concepts for a very long time. And uh, he's also an author. He's written a number of books on lean. He's also moved into uh, novels. He's written The Noah Option, where powerful politicians target a brilliant black scientist, Dr. Grace Washington. And her story continues in the sequel, The Rainbow Option, where powerful elites unleash a deadly virus and unsuspecting Americans, and Grace must develop a cure. In the timeshell option, ISIS invades and creates a New England caliphate, making women second-class citizens. One teenage girl fights back. And if you haven't read Mike's books, I urge you to do so. They're available, not only his novels, but also his business books. They're available in the America Online Bookstore. Michael was also the technical editor of my book, The Way Forward, Lean Leadership and Systems Thinking for Businesses Large and Small. And my book is also available in there. And uh, some of the concepts in my book will be concepts that we'll talk about today as well. So uh, not throwing a plug out for the book, just, just letting you know Michael is the technical editor. And so with that, I'm going to bring on Michael McCarthy. I'm going to ask him to go ahead and tell us a little about himself and uh, his background and, and just say hello. So, Michael, you're there? Yes, I'm there. Thank you, Wally. So, yes, I've been involved with uh, management training and productivity improvement with business and industry for most of my career. And then, of course, in the latter part of my career, learning about lean manufacturing and uh, a bit about Six Sigma and the systems thinking aspect of it. 
and how it applies to everything as you just outlined with the example of electricity and the electrical grid, everything in our modern world is interconnected in some kind of a system. And the danger point is when these, as you pointed out, is when these politicians start interfering and tweaking with systems they don't understand, it has unintended consequences. The great quality guru Dimming talked about people interfering with with a system. I can't remember the word he used, but the only word that comes to mind is tweaking. Well, tweaking. Yeah, yeah, interfering or tweaking. Yeah, he, he used a he used a number of words. Uh, you're, you're talking about he, he Deming had this brilliant example where he uses uh, he creates a system that he knows exactly how much variation it's going to have, where there are red beads and black beads and it gives people a paddle and they have to dip it in and they're expected to pull out red beads and not black beads and of course everybody gets both beads but there's natural variation where one person might actually meet their quota somebody else doesn't have any of the beads they're supposed to have and so on and so on and so on and what he does is he starts yelling at people and firing people and praising people because they have a lot of red beads and then at the end he shows you it's all natural variation none of these people had any control whatsoever about the number of red beads that they were pulling in. And he said, you know, this is what managers do when they run around with their hair on fire. Oh my God, this order's late. Oh my God, this order's early. What did we do? How come it's so early? And and it's just natural variation. They don't understand their own manufacturing processes, their own systems. That's where politicians are, Mike. Would you agree? Yes, exactly. And as he pointed out, if it's within normal variation, if uh, if there's the occasional spike up that's part of normal variation. You leave the system alone. Uh, if that spike up is unacceptable, well, then we have to get into process improvement, which is, which is a whole different subject. But don't arbitrarily try to tweak the system uh, because then you throw the whole system off kilter. Um, and one f- famous joke, I, I think this goes back to another management thinker, uh, said the factory of the future will be perfectly balanced as a system and will be run in an automated fashion and that the factory of the future will only have two living beings in it, a man and a dog. And the function of the man will be to feed the dog. The function of the dog will be to bite the man if he tries to interfere with the controls and tweak the system. <laughs> so, that's that's what we need in politics right now is a dog to bite these politicians when they try to tweak the supply chain, tweak the uh, currency supply, uh, et cetera, on and on. Well, when we talk about an individual business, then we really get into lean manufacturing concepts. But when we talk about how businesses interact with other businesses, then we start talking about what the economy is. And the economy, that's a system too, isn't it? Yes, Absolutely. And these politicians who think they can tweak the economy and uh, interfere with it just end up making things worse. And as Deming demonstrated, you throw the system even more out of control. You might have a system that's within process control and normal limits, but they throw it out uh, and make it worse. And of course, history is full of examples. We had the Weimar Germany where they inflated themselves into a, a, a terrible condition where a Suit uh, a wheelbarrow full of paper money was not enough to buy one loaf of bread. And of course, we've had a recent example of Venezuela doing the same thing and inflating their currency to the point where you can't buy anything. So ignoring these actual empirical examples in real countries and real history, we've got the current administration inflating us 
uh, and they think they can get away with it because they can they control the printing presses. Yeah, let me throw another system out there at you, Mike. When we think of, <clears throat> excuse me, when we think of morality, of course, we always hear that you don't have to be religious to be moral. But when we think about our country, our constitution, our way of life, John Adams, of course, said that without a moral and religious people, evil would would swim through the bounds of our constitution as a whale swims through a net. And of course, what he was saying is that we don't have any means within our country, leaving people as a free people, leaving people with some semblance of liberty. We don't have any means of controlling the evil nature that men or women may display. So we have to be a moral and religious people. And uh, when I think of the connections between morality and religion, I see a system at play there too, in which you can be a moral person without being religious. But if morality is something that comes from within, then each of us, we have the right to produce our own morality. And when we start looking at society as a whole, it's not my morality plus your morality plus somebody else's morality plus somebody else's morality. Societal morality becomes only that which we all agree on. So if we all agree murder is evil, then okay, let's ban murder. But societal morality, if it does not come from something outside of the individual, if morals don't come from above in some semblance, in some way, then there is no shared morality. It's the morality of the lowest common denominator, which is no morality at all. Now, Michael, could you describe how such society in which it's utilizing the morality of the lowest common denominator as America increasingly is, how are they supposed to operate in a free society with, with civil rights? Well, as you point out, it makes it very, very difficult because when we don't have a uh, commonly agreed upon morality or it's a lowest common denominator morality, um, that means the only way we can continue to work together uh, in, in everyday life is with increasing government control. Um, a quick example would be traffic rules. You and I can get on a highway and we understand what a stop sign means. That's the systems and we all have a systems thinking. We don't need a cop at every corner to enforce a stop sign because you and I know what a stop sign means or a four-way stop or what the traffic light means. And we obey that. And as long as we conform to the system, we've kind of internalized traffic morality, if you want to call it that. But if we don't agree to that and we say, oh, well, I'll just do whatever I want to, uh, I can run a stoplight, a, stop a stop sign or whatever, we're going to have carnage on the highways. And then, of course, the government response is, oh, well, we've got to have a policeman on every corner. We've got to have a, a control and so forth. And then they go into the over-control mode, which systems that are over-controlled bog down and don't work very well. And so morality as a system, if we all commonly agree to it, just like we commonly agree to the traffic rules, we can have a smoothly functioning society uh, because we've, as you point out, we've internalized this and we don't need a policeman to enforce everything. I mean, it's something as simple as uh, walking downtown in my town and merchants would have uh, merchandise out on the sidewalk, either on a table or clothing on racks. And they don't worry about, are people going to steal this stuff? They assume that there's a common morality of thou shalt not steal. 
that at least most of the people aren't going to just pick it up and walk away with it, that they'll step inside the store and pay for it. Now, well, it's, it's more efficient and less costly that way, isn't it, too? If everybody polices their own morality, if everybody does the right thing themselves and polices themselves, isn't that more efficient than trying to have everybody doing whatever they want and the police have to enforce all of us? Exactly. And it becomes much more complicated and invites the growth of the state. We get into a, a, a gulag state where the, the everybody's looking over your shoulder. And of course, we've kind of backed into that with our current cancel culture in the absence of a commonly accepted morality. It's like everybody can point the accusing finger at everybody else and invite invite them to be canceled or ostracized or whatever. But are they, but are they canceling the right things? Exactly. They are not canceling the right things. They, uh, this is why having a commonly accepted standard of the rule of law is a system unto itself with rules of evidence, rules of law. And when you abandon that and say, I can accuse anybody of anything and I don't have to produce proof, I don't have to produce witnesses, uh, the accused is not, is not entitled to face his accuser, uh, then anything goes and we have mob rule. Well, you're talking about sexual assault allegations in college, I think. But what about the opposite of over-policing? What happens when you have district attorneys that refuse to enforce the law and you just let people, you know, in L.A. right now, you can steal up to you from, a, you, can, you can shoplift up to $1,000 worth of material without getting it. It's not even a crime. <clears throat> in New York, you can actually take more than that as long as you can show that you needed it. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we've read about how <laughs> criminals are flocking to California. They've Im- they're effectively importing criminals uh, because the criminals know that, hey, I won't be prosecuted if it's a thousand dollars. So I go to one place, do a thousand, go to another store, do a thousand, go here and there, everywhere. And as long as each individual incident is under a thousand, hey, I'm home free. Now, that's an example of unintended consequences where somebody doesn't think through systems thinking to say, the, the law and criminal offenses and not prosecuting people for stealing is, is part of a tuned system that has taken 200 years to tune up and they're destroying it and say, oh, I'm just going to arbitrarily change this. It's like if you and I, using your earlier example of electricity in the electrical grid, to say, oh, uh, I'm recommended to have a 20 amp fuse for this circuit. No, I think I'll just uh, replace it with a 10 amp fuse. If I arbitrarily upset the system standards, then I'm going to have blown fuses, possibly start electrical fires in my house, all because I think I can decide for myself and override the system requirements, whether it's commonly accepted standards of morality, whether it's uh, uh, legal standards and so forth. It all has a consequence. I think a 10 amp fuse is probably sufficient for a light bulb, but I better not plug in a television set, right? Exactly. Or let me plug in a floor heater. Let me plug in my hair dryer. Let me yeah, plug let's, in all these other things. Let's go it all back. Has a consequence. It does. Let's go back just a little bit. I hate, sometimes I hate the phrase unintended consequences. I know that's that's the correct economic term, but sometimes I think when people hear unintended consequences, they think that means that the consequence wasn't intended. But aren't there people out there that will sell a package as being for one thing when really it's for something else? I think of the minimum wage, for example, the first minimum wage in human history was put on by Emperor Trajan in Rome, and uh, the Roman people were upset that non-Romans were moving to Rome 
looking for better opportunities than they could get in the lands they were from. And when they got to Rome, the Roman people were very, very wealthy compared to them. So they could offer to work for a little bit less than the Romans did. And it was still a lot more money than they'd ever made before in their lives. As a consequence, they would offer to work for a little bit less. And Romans started hiring them first. And then the Roman people started fearing that they would lose their jobs to these people that were moving to Rome who were not Roman citizens and that were getting paid less. And, and as a consequence, if people who were employing non-Romans were all of a sudden making more profit. And while they might prefer Romans to non-Romans, apparently people, uh, most business owners prefer profit. They don't care about, about such things as whether or not this person's Roman and this person isn't. They do, but not as much as they care about profit. So they were hiring non-Romans first. And the first minimum wage was actually put in place to stop that practice to encourage businesses to hire Romans first again and make the non-Romans unemployed. So it was, it was very discriminatory. And when you look at it in our country, it's the same thing. It was, it was for the exact same reason. It was in order to, to initially in order to prevent black people from moving north and offering to work for a little bit less than white people. Yes, exactly. Just so. So you, you make the case that the first minimum, uh, wage was uh, racist in, in, uh, in some of the original motivation. Um, what, one of the other things you bring up there, uh, I, I want to I clarify when I say unintentional consequences, unintentional does not mean unpredictable. So for example, the California policy that you bring up of not prosecuting people for theft under $1,000, to the people of California, it may be unintentional, but to you and I, it's, it's entirely predictable. Any system where the, where the penalties are less in one state than another will attract the perpetrators, will attract the criminals to go to that state. So the fact that criminals are flocking to California where they can ply their trade without fear of consequences was entirely predictable. And it doesn't take an economist or a legal theorist or whatever. This is not rocket science. Anybody can understand this. Well, let's pause right there, Mike. I want to pick up again at that exact spot when we begin our second segment. But first, let's talk about systems that keep us healthy. Let's talk about some of the systems that some of our sponsors have, some of the products, that is, that they have that we can utilize within our systems, our daily lives, in order to stay healthy. So we're going to take a break here. We're going to pick it right back up on the other side. Don't go anywhere. I promise it's going to be a great show. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. 
Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're here with Michael McCarthy, my friend and colleague, fellow lean practitioner, uh, an expert in systems thinking. And uh, in our last segment, Mike was talking about how the lawlessness in places like L.A., Seattle, and New York is being created by uh, by the, the changes politicians are making in terms of the laws they enforce, whether or not they will enforce the law, how criminals are now moving into those areas because they can more easily uh, craft their, their apply their trade with less risk. And of course, risk is a part of a system. People think about risk. So if you decrease the risk of criminal activity, you're attracting people that want to commit criminal activity to that area. So the systems that are at play, Mike, I want to go right back into that because when you talk about unintended consequences, the natural, to me, I think of them as natural outcroppings of the changes to the system that somebody has decided to make. That doesn't just, it's not just the crime itself. That crime has a ripple effect throughout the entire economy and throughout the entire society of those areas, does it? Can you touch on that a bit? Absolutely. It goes back to your starting this whole conversation about systems thinking that it's never an isolated thing. So for example, uh, you and I have talked about this before in San Francisco, uh, the outcome of this uh, reduced penalty for, um, for theft and so forth is that a number of drug stores have shut down in the city because people just walk in, grab whatever they want, walk out. And so there's a loss to the city in these city neighborhoods that my neighborhood drugstore where I could go and get bottled water, I could get my prescriptions filled and so forth. I can't do that anymore. And there were many senior citizens who were only within walking distance. Now they would have to get on a bus or call a cab or whatever to go to a different part of the city to get their their meds, their prescriptions filled and so forth. So there's a human cost to this. In the name of compassion, oh, we don't want to unfairly punish somebody who... uh, like Valjean, can't think of the name of the character in Les Miserables, was put into prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Oh, let's have compassion. Well, they've raised the bar. This is beyond compassion. These are professional thieves now. And who's paying the price? The ordinary citizen who now no longer has the convenient neighborhood market or neighborhood drugstore they can walk to to uh, meet their needs. Well, if this were Les Miserables, we would have to sing through the interview, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, your point is well made, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? I mean, think about the breakdown of morality that allowing rampant crime that not enforcing the law creates, and then the impact that that has throughout society. Talk about an elderly person now has to get on the bus and go further to get to a drugstore to get their prescriptions, but is the bus even safe? 
Exactly. Is the bus itself even safe? So there's the further ripple effect that if you get on public transportation, we read the stories about buses and subways, their attack, uh, attacks are happening on people uh, and buses and subways. And so if then people are now afraid to get on the buses and subways, well, now what do they do? And let's talk about the specific groups that seem to be primarily targeted. If I'm not mistaken, it's Asians and Jewish people. Now, I know you, you hear a lot about how that is proof of white supremacy and that it's conservatives that are doing that, and yet it's not happening in conservative parts of the country. It's happening in parts of the country where almost everybody is, is, is on the liberal. And, and, and so I look at that and I think, well, what kinds of things are we doing that might drive people to be resentful of Asian people and of Jewish people? And I think, well, all this anti-Israel stuff, you know, that's that's going to have an effect. And that, that, again, isn't coming from the political right. That's coming from the political left. The political right is still very supportive of Israel. And then I think, well, what are we doing with Asians that might cause resentment toward Asians? And I think you've got all of these left-leading areas that want to change the rules about, for example, admissions in schools because too many Asians are getting in as a proportion of the, the, the Asian part of our population. And I look at that and I think, well, why are Asians more able to get into the best schools and to do better at school than other groups and better economically than other groups? And it's not just Asians. It's Asians. You have people from India. There are other groups that do very well also. And I think about it and I think, well, what are the cultures of the places that these people came from? And when, when you look, Thomas Sowell did a study on this. It, generally speaking, when somebody moves to the United States from a poor country, they will be, compared to the majority of Americans, relatively poor. And so are their children, but their children will be wealthier than they are. Their grandchildren will generally have made it to the mean. They just become average Americans. And uh, some of them doing better, some of them doing worse. But as a group, they just become American, They're just average. And it seems to work that way for group after group after group culture after culture after culture, as they become more assimilated into America, they become more American, and the economic differences go away. And the differences in terms of improvement of performance, they tend to go away. But when we look at groups, cultures that do better than people who who from America, those who move here and immediately are better economically, they're doing better in school, they're getting the better programs in school, they're able to get into the better schools and what have you, you have the same thing. There's a regression to mean over time, but it seems to take longer. And, and when we discourage those groups from doing better, when we deny them the right to do that, Mike, I want to ask you to talk about that. And, and what are the unintended consequences of the kinds of things that we are doing to prevent Asians, for example, from, from getting into the schools that they would otherwise be able to get into? effectively discriminating against cultures who have a high achievement uh, culture. Uh, In the Asian uh, cultures, we read about the tiger moms who make sure their children do their homework. We read, you said the Jewish, the Jewish mothers who make sure their children do their homework. If they do their homework, they learn, they score better on the tests, and so they're more likely to get into the uh, colleges and universities. That's got nothing to do with genetics or uh, whether you're Asian looking or the color of your skin. Again, Thomas Sowell documented where uh, black schools back in the 40s, uh, the the students achieved much, much higher 
because then they had a culture of do your homework. It was only after the John uh, LBJ Great Society programs were, oh, we're going to help you. We're going to, quote, help you by having all this uh, welfare payments and so forth. When the message got through was, oh, I don't have to score well in my well let's let's get get to welfare in a second because that's something i want to talk about too but i want to go specifically back to this and when i start making rules quotas where the people who work the hardest are not the ones that get into school because if they do one group culturally may be overrepresented compared to other groups what am i doing to the system at play that encourages the kinds of behaviors that lead to success does, is, is there no impact on the cultural adaptation that people will make in order to become successful by watching those, for example, who work hard and then they're successful and wanting to emulate that? What am I doing to culture? What am I doing to society? What am I doing to people's prospects for success when I start to have quotas where I'm going to say how hard you work, the cultural background you come from, the way you were raised? I'm not going to allow that to have an impact anymore. Exactly. It punishes achievement. So the message to me is, if I try to emulate these other cultures that are uh, uh, study hard and work hard and and learn and get ahead, no, it's not going to help me any. I will be pushed down or held back regardless, because we have these quota systems. And so the rule of thumb, uh, one of my other backgrounds is behavioral psychology, is if doing more gets you more, both in business and in your personal life, that is a healthy system. And that's what our capitalist economy is based on. But if doing more study doesn't get me more uh, higher grades and so forth, because they're suppressed by this arbitrary quota system, then there's no reason for me to do more. Say, okay, I get it. Don't study. Don't work hard. Uh, Don't work hard to get ahead. He made a similar point 30 years ago that, um, in South Florida, recent immigrants from the Caribbean uh, who were black would start would start businesses and all their family members would be a part of the businesses, little mom and pop grocery stores and bodegas and so forth. And they would get rich. And he made the point they got rich because they didn't, as a recent immigrant, they didn't know there was such a thing as welfare. Mike, I don't want to cut you off. That's that's exactly right. But I want to go back and talk about welfare a little bit. Okay, go. Uh, what is the impact of welfare as an incentive system? And walk me through how that ripples through the economy as a whole. Okay. Welfare says you can live a comfortable life by not working because I'm paid to stay at home. And again, you look at this as a rational economic decision. Wally, you offer me a job that pays uh, X amount of dollars a week. uh, And then the welfare system says, we will pay you uh, X minus 10% to sit home and you don't have to get on the bus to go to work. You don't have to sit in an office. You don't have to do any of those things. Just stay home, watch TV and play video games. As a rational decision, I say, I'm going to take the job that pays almost as well and it's easier. I get to stay home and do nothing or do whatever pleases me. That's a rational economic decision on my part. So welfare incentivizes not working. And then you have a whole generation of people who don't get ahead, uh, don't accumulate wealth in their families, aren't able to afford their own homes because they become 
generational welfare families, and then it, it increases year or election by election, the system increases. And I maintain that even these COVID payments were kind of a gateway drug into welfare because even people who would normally work, oh, we're going to have compassion on you. And since you're forced to stay home on account of COVID, we're going to pay you anyway. Well, then that got me used to the idea that I could make a living staying at home and doing nothing. So even when the COVID restrictions lift, I am strongly tempted to just go file for unemployment, file for welfare, and so on, where I can make money by staying home. Yeah, we're going to go to COVID next. So I'm glad you brought that up. But to me, the really scary thing about welfare is when you're encouraging people not to work, welfare, of course, is expensive. You have to take wealth from people who do work to cover the people who do not work, which means that you then have to increase taxes on the as, as the segment of society, the percentage of society that chooses to live off of others grows. The incentive to live off of others must also grow as the taxes on those still working has to grow. Wasn't that a part of what happened in Venezuela? Everybody talks about other things that happened in Venezuela, but wasn't the incentive system encouraging people not to produce, punishing producers, raising taxes on producers to subsidize consumption? Didn't have a lot to do with it, too? Oh, absolutely. And, And again, the perhaps unintended, but entirely predictable consequence uh, is that we had phenomena like uh, the average person in Venezuela, an oil-rich country, not being able to afford gasoline for their car. And they're having brownouts because their generating plants would run low on the oil it takes to run the generators. Well, they're oil-rich in the ground. They're no longer oil-rich in refineries, are they? Exactly. And so by removing the incentives to produce, uh, they don't have the oil to run the generators. Also, the skilled engineers that ran the generating plants fled the country. And so when the plant breaks down, they can't be repaired because the know-how has fled the country in the brains of those engineers. So welfare is just so corrosive in so many ways. Um, And the tragedy of of American compassion was a book that showed how before the widespread welfare systems administered by government, there were numerous and perfectly capable church-based groups, nonprofit groups, all sorts of groups that would take care of people in need without requiring the government to get involved. But the difference being, if you are part of my church group and, and we are subsidizing you because you broke your leg and you couldn't go to work. Okay, at the end of six weeks, the leg is healed. If I see you out in your yard mowing the lawn, I say, oh, Wally can now go to work. So I'm going to tell the church group, stop giving him the money because he's capable of going back to work now. And let's talk about that. That doesn't work. You get the money regardless. Yeah, Let's talk about that, too, because you brought up COVID a little while ago. Our economy was absolutely booming before COVID hit the scene. And uh, it looked like Trump was going to win by a landslide. All of a sudden, COVID comes in, and that disrupted everything. Talking systems thinking, that didn't just disrupt the system. That brought it to a standstill. So let's talk a little bit about how COVID affected not only the system then, but the aftermath of COVID is still affecting our economy as a system today. Exactly. Uh, and so as we, as we talked about with the COVID stimulus payments being the gateway drug to more and more people staying home, the predictable consequences with fewer people producing things 
there's fewer stuff for the rest of us to buy, whether it's gasoline being more expensive at the pump, not being able to get uh, baby formula at the store for children. Uh, it, it's simple economics. If there's fewer people making stuff, there's less stuff for you and I to buy to make uh, to meet our basic needs. So COVID, you know, it's almost uh, like a, a conspiracy theory. If there's any way to totally shut down an economy by introducing this scary thing called COVID that, oh, we've all got to be fearful of it. When we've now learned that for most normally healthy people, it's no worse than a bad case of the flu. You get over it and then you can go back to work and there's no need to for all these uh, tweaking of the system, wear masks, stay home uh, and so forth. All those things that totally disrupted our economy. Because in the past, when we say every winter, we, we know there's going to be a the flu and we just work with it and it didn't shut down the economy. And when we look at the reactions to COVID from our national leaders, we know that the masks weren't terribly effective. We know that the shutdowns were not effective. I think the uh, I, I think the uh, National Institute of Health came out with a study. Actually, John Hopkins came out with a study that said that it was zero point zero two percent effective in, in slowing the spread of COVID. The lockdowns were so the lockdowns did absolutely nothing. We look at ivermectin. We look at the different medications that were available to potentially treat COVID early. And all of a sudden now we know not only were they effective, but they were very effective, particularly if taken early as symptoms of, as symptoms were observed, and also very, very cheap. And we look at the people that were, in America, it's still illegal to treat COVID in a hospital with those medications like ivermectin and HCQ. So it blows my mind that that is the case. The drug they actually use causes kidney failure. There are indications that we may have had as many people die of kidney failure because of the way they were treated in the hospital as died actually from COVID-19 itself. And I, I look at that, Mike, am I stupid to think that the people that are making these decisions about how you can treat this disease may not be as, as, as stupid as they seem? Well, entirely, that, that's the evidence starting to point that way, that they have pointed us toward these other newly invented drugs. And uh, there's more and more evidence emerging about the, how Fauci and the, all these uh, government health agencies are in bed with the pharmaceutical companies in a, in a kind of a crony capitalism, where by restricting those other drugs that were cheap, easily available, and very effective, they were paving the way for these newly uh, newly developed drugs that are not as effective, as you point out, and even dangerous, as you point out, uh, because then the drug companies could make a lot of profit from it. Well, that's, then, that's course, the economic impact. But what about the political impact? Think about the and, impact this has over society in terms of politics and control, the government. Exactly. The, the idea that... Uh, this, this is a trial run for how badly can we scare you into doing what we say. If we say stay home and most people stayed home, we said wear a mask, most people wore a mask. And then even though the science didn't support any of that, um, they were successful in frightening us into obeying the government elites telling us what to do. Uh, and so this is just yet another exercise in political control on uh, testing how easily they can scare us into compliance. 
And to look at just how effective that is and how some of the people that are making these rules and deciding that you can't take effective drugs, uh, that you have to have the treatments that they prescribe that are maybe not very effective at all and maybe even dangerous. When we look at that, there was a leaked Chinese defense document from the, from the, the Chinese defense industry that that came out. And uh, one of the things that was in it, this is very, very interesting. The lockdowns that China had very recently in Shanghai and other manufacturing centers, where they were locking everybody in their in their apartments, in their homes, not letting them out except once a week to get tested and to get food, and locking some people in factories because uh, they wanted the factories to be able to run. So they would literally house people in the factories, and they were in the factory for, for a month or a month and a half before they would let them go home. And uh, according to this, this leaked Chinese defense document, the purpose for that was as a trial run for the invasion of Taiwan, as they believe that when they invade Taiwan, it may cause a lot of negative reactions throughout China, particularly if Taiwan puts up a good fight, as is happening in Ukraine, and kills a lot of the Chinese invaders. And uh, what they want to do is they want to totally lock their society down during the invasion of Taiwan so that there can be no uprising. As insane as that may sound, Mike, is is is... Is that in our future? That could very well be, because as you've pointed out, this uh, government lockdown uh, under the excuse of COVID uh, six, w- was a success in many ways, because we did lock down, we did stay home, we did wear the mask. And so uh, that can be a trial run for our own government doing this to us. Uh, one of uh, the recent issue of Imprimus magazine is an article by Christopher Rufo, he makes an interesting point that we should stop looking at this as a political issue of left versus right and think of it as the top top versus the bottom, that it's these small progressive elites at the top trying to enforce their will on the rest of us uh, and look at it that way. Uh, and when you do, it, it's kind of liberating in a way to say, I should be resisting this top-down dictation. Because we know in the marketplace of ideas that doesn't work. We know in the marketplace of, um, as as you pointed out, uh, the drug development, when they locked it down and said only these certain drugs are allowed to be tested and used, that restricts your choices. When you restrict choice, you restrict effectiveness. So, yes, uh, as as you point out, if the Chinese are using this as their mechanism uh, for getting ready for invasion, it could very well be. Um, that our own government is is uh, testing out the similar concept. And you just said something that segues into the next point that I want to that, that I, I'd like to like us to make, which is uh, the marketplace of ideas. Now, Al Gore once said that the internet would represent a marketplace of ideas that would make the co- the country and potentially even the globe a hyper democracy in which everybody would be able to present their ideas to everybody else. Everybody be able to see all of the ideas of everyone else. And then the ideas that were through debate, through trial and error, through what have you, that were the most effective, that proved to be the better ideas would kind of start to filter the way up to the top. And it would help society run itself with, with ideas that are, you know, the best ideas, I guess. And so El Gore saw that as a marketplace of ideas. But when we start looking at the censorship of conservatives, on, for example, Facebook and pre-Musk on Twitter, probably still on Twitter because Musk doesn't really own it yet. 
when we start looking at the censorship of conservatives on these platforms, on the internet, what impact does that have on Al Gore's view of the internet as a marketplace of ideas? Well, just so. It, it turns out not to be a marketplace of ideas because they're restricting choice. Uh, and again, from the top down, these, these uh, progressive elites at the top, they're deciding what's true and what's false, what's in disinformation, what's uh, good information and so forth, as opposed to allowing me to decide for myself on the internet. Well, and I think it's also a fitting metaphor for the for the the restriction on what people are allowed to produce. I remember Bernie Sanders talking about how he doesn't understand how we can live in a society that is 31 different brands of deodorant when babies are starving in the streets. And I thought, well, first of all, that's not true. Babies are not starving. Actually, right now they are starving in the streets because we don't have baby formula. But it wasn't true at the time Bernie Sanders said it, and if we had competent governance, it would not be true today. But I look at that and I think, well, unless Bernie Sanders is going to feed babies deodorant, I don't see a direct connection behind the amount of deodorant we produce and baby food, other than he wants to control the the flow of resources, the 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 goods and services that are produced, the means of production. As, as, the, as, the, as the phrase goes, he wants to control that in a centrally planned economy. How does that work in terms of systems thinking relative to a free market economy where, as in a free market of ideas, each individual is free to decide for themselves what they want, and then that demand, as it, as it conglomerates into, into a larger and larger group, starts to determine through profit what products are produced? Yes, and what we learn in lean thinking is that the ultimate uh, determiner is the customer. The customer decides what they like and what they buy, that if, if more people buy um, uh, Cajun spices than they buy Asian spices, well, then the profit level is a price signal that signals the makers of Cajun spices produce more. But when you artificially restrict that by having a single elite at the top, like Bernie Sanders deciding, oh, no, we can't have the deodorant or we can't have the Cajun spices, then the produce signal, the pull signal, uh, as we say in lean, has been destroyed because a single person is deciding. And those of us who, who live long enough to remember the uh, car lots overflowing with cars uh, before uh, the Japanese models were introduced in, in uh, more efficient uh, lean methods of production is that we paid a higher price and the car dealers paid a higher price because you had to keep all that inventory on your lot. Whereas now, if you notice in car dealerships, there's fewer and fewer cars. So you order a car and now it, it may take a month or more before that car is delivered, but that reduces the inventory carrying cost of the uh, car dealership. And so that benefits us in the long run. So having a single person impose standards from above always is a disaster. You talked about cars. And uh, I'd like to just briefly talk about Joe Biden's, the way he wants to deal with, I saw gasoline yesterday. I was out driving and it was over $5 where I live. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's expensive. 
Joe Biden's strategy to bring down the price of gasoline, he said, is to increase the amount of ethanol that we have in the gasoline and to use winter blends throughout the summer, which means more ethanol in the gasoline. And uh, as I think you and I know, when you put more ethanol in gasoline, that increases the price of both gasoline and corn. Let's talk about gasoline as a system, what we could do to lower prices, not just gasoline, but in general, rather than, than using more ethanol that's actually going to make it more expensive, what could we actually do to bring down the price? Well, we can deregulate uh, a lot of federal controls over drilling and production. Uh, we could open up some of the federal lands uh, that used to lease drilling rights uh, and allow companies to do more drilling. Uh, and we can uh, ease up on some of the regulatory mechanisms uh, so that it becomes a little bit easier to produce the oil and then refine the oil. Um, I'm told that we haven't had a new refinery built in over 50 years um, because of all the rules and regulations about it. Now, here's the unintended consequence for so much of our manufacturing, not just gasoline, is it's all been outsourced to China. Why? Because we're escaping all the regulatory choking down of industry that happens in the United States. So here's Joe Biden begging Saudi Arabia to pump more oil uh, because he doesn't want to pump it here in our own nation. So with gasoline, as with all other things, if you, if you leave it alone and stop trying to tweak the system with the, all these government controls, and even the ethanol, which lowered the effectiveness of engine, you got more horsepower and better miles per gallon with the straight fuel without ethanol being added to it, uh, we'd probably all be better off. And then we'd have some breathing room to perfect some of these alternate technologies, such as electric cars, we'd be in trouble. And we don't have the power grid for it. I'm afraid, Mike, we're running out of time. So um, before we, 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 we let you go, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you, what you're up to, and, uh, and how they can track uh, your work? Okay. Well, if you want to read uh, a bit more about my fiction books, which try to dramatically show the effects of all this government over-control of our economy, you can go to the noahoption.com, and they have uh, descriptions there. Uh, also with links through to Amazon as to where you can buy the book. Uh, if you uh, go to workingremotely.org, uh, you'll see some of my business books, including the recent book that my wife and I wrote during, <laughs> during the shutdown, which is Working From Home is Your Superpower. Uh, so when you're forced to work home, we, we produce that book. So you can take a look at that in our other business books including my book about uh, uh, lean called Sustain Your Gains. Okay, very good. Thank you, Mike. You're also on America Out Loud. You have a weekly column. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Michael McCarthy. And I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, that's all the time we have. So thank you for joining us. This is the voice of a nation. I am Wallace Garneau, and now it is time to get involved and get loud. Get loud.